So last week we began a two-week look at where we get our Bible. Last week we looked a lot at the Old Testament. If you were here with us, and I know many of you were not, you were in Dr. Aaron's class, and somebody got something like that, I don't even know what that is. Uh, We began talking about the canonization of the Bible. Now, if you look at those pieces of paper that I have, those are because Robin Snyder's in this class. And Robin Snyder says that she needs notes. And because I love Robin with all my heart, I have printed out my notes. Those notes were not intended for mass production, so they may make zero sense. But they are for you. You can write on them. You can fill them in. I'm essentially going to walk straight through those and teach those to the best of my ability tonight. So that's, that's what those are. That's the one without the red writing. I'll mention the one with the red writing um, here in a little bit. And if I don't, please bring it to my attention. It's not actually a part of the lesson, but I think it will be. A beneficial add-on to the lesson, okay? So last week we began talking about the process of canonization. Now the canon is those books of the Bible, the, the canon is essentially what we call our Bible. It is those books that are recognized as being authoritative, as being the inspired, God-breathed word of God himself. Now, the process that we've been discussing is the process of canonization. In other words, how did we come to get this particular group of books to be what we consider to be the Bible? In other words, how do we know all these, these books that the History Channel talks about and the Da Vinci Code and we got all that stuff going? Like, how do we know that all of those books aren't a part of the Bible? We talked even last week why the Apocrypha is not considered a part of the canon, a part of the Uh, authoritative word of God. And so we looked a lot at the Old Testament. And one of the things that we talked about in the process of canonization is that canonization does not give authority to the the books. That it wasn't the church coming together and saying, all right, we we, we, we uh, impart authority onto these books because we recognize them as being valuable. Instead, what we understand canonization to be is the recognition by the church of the authority that is already inherently in these books because they contain the word of God. Now, do you remember how we said that is the difference that is the difference between the Catholic understanding and the Protestant understanding, right? That the Catholic understanding is that the church does give the authority to the books. That the, they do give and, and impart to it an authority that allows it to speak on behalf of God. But the Protestant understanding is that we believe these books were already breathed out by God, already superintended by the Holy Spirit. And so they contain within themselves an authority that is inherent, that has been God-given from the beginning. And so the canonization is simply the recognition of the church of the authority that is already inherent within the book. So I gave you last week, as a quick overview, five reasons that I think that we can trust 100% without hesitation that the Old Testament books that are in our Bibles are the books that are supposed to be in our Bibles. That they are, in fact, the books that Jesus read, that Jesus studied, and Jesus memorized, and Jesus quoted. Let me just run through those five reasons really quickly. Reason number one, for over 2,000 years, practically no one, including liberal scholars who want to undermine the authority of the Bible, have questioned the accuracy of our Old Testament. In other words, even those that do not uphold that this is an inerrant, 
infallible book, even those that question the, the Genesis account of creation and question the miracles of Jesus and the virgin birth of Jesus, even they acknowledge that the books that we have in our Old Testament are exactly the books that were recognized by the people of God for millennia as being the authoritative word of God, even if they themselves do not believe it to be the authoritative word of God. Reason number two, the seriousness with which the Jews maintain their scripture. Now remember, the Bible, the, the Old Testament contains the history, the lineage, the ancestry. It, everything about the Jewish culture, everything about the Jewish history, all of it is contained within that Old Testament. So they had people whose jobs was simply to maintain the scriptures, to safeguard it, to protect it, to make sure that it was free from error. They managed it with the utmost integrity and with the utmost uh, ridicule because they wanted it to be perfect. Reason number three, Jesus and the apostles believed that the Old Testament was inspired, authoritative, and accurate, which is why they quoted it more than 295 times. 295 times Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament quote the Old Testament as being the word of God. So if we are to believe Jesus and we are to believe in the resurrection, we are to believe in all of the things that the New Testament teaches us, we must simultaneously uphold the authority of the Old Testament. Now, here's a quick quiz for those of you who were with me last week. The Apocrypha. You remember the Apocrypha? is the, 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 those books that cover the intertestamental period, the period between Malachi and Matthew, that, that window of time right here, the 400 years of silence. Remember, the, uh, the Catholics uphold those as authoritative following from the Council of Trent in response to the Reformation. But how many times has the, is the Apocrypha quoted in the New Testament? Does anybody remember? Goose egg. Goose egg. That is one of the most damning arguments against the Apocrypha as being authoritative scripture. 295 times the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. And not even once is the Apocrypha mentioned or recognized. Any of the books quoted in any way, shape, or form. Reason number four, we have old, old, old manuscripts, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls that affirm that what you have in, the, in your Bible is the very same thing that Jesus had. Remember the old the Dead Sea Scrolls with the shepherd boy that threw the, threw the rock up and busted the clay pots, and they found these scrolls that are, older, that are 400 years older than Jesus that were, were perfectly in line with the Old Testament that we already had. We found these in the 40s, okay? So we had 2,000 years gap here, and they perfectly reaffirm exactly what we had in our Old Testament, giving us great confidence in what we had. And finally, Jewish historians such as Josephus have all unilaterally affirmed the same books with the same content as being the authoritative word of God. And so we have a lot of things to hang our hats on when it comes to the Old Testament and how we can be certain that it is, in fact, the authoritative word of God. So now let's move into the New Testament. Now let's begin to, to discuss the New Testament and how it is that we can know that the New Testament that we have is one in which we can have confidence, one in which we can know are the books that we were intended to have. So we're going to look a lot at the process as to how we obtained our New Testament. Now luckily we have a lot more information about how we got our New Testament than how we got our Old Testament. The Old Testament is much older, uh, obviously, and so as the New Testament came, that's much more recent in, in history, and so we're able to have a much clearer process as to what that was 
what was, went into the canonization of these books. But before we do that, I want you to think about how important this was to the church. There was nothing, nothing, nothing more important to the church than which books were the word of God, which books were the scriptures, and which ones weren't. For the first 300 years of the church's existence, to be a Christian was essentially a death sentence. If you were to be publicly identified as a Christian, you were a public outcast, one to be thrown into the midst of the Roman Colosseum and to be devoured by lions and the gladiators for sports. So when it came to the Bible, when it came to the scriptures, you weren't just deciding what you were going to read. You weren't just deciding what you were going to memorize. You were deciding what is it that is worth dying for. What books am I willing to give my life up for it? Men, there's stories of, of early Christians, early brothers and sisters, people that are in our faith family, right? That would have sh just shreds of Bible. And they would hide them from soldiers, risking their life for nothing more than just a, a, a fraction of the letter to the church at Ephesus or to the church at Philippi, hiding them in the crevices of their home, being willing to risk their life and the safety of even their families to safeguard this word. So when we come to understand the New Testament and the books that are, we need to understand the tone with which this was maintained. We need to understand that when these men and women were, were, were passing this around and as these brothers and sisters and these churches were, 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 were documenting this, this meant everything. This meant, what am I going to die for? I'll die for Philippians. I'm not dying for 1 Maccabees, right? I, I, I'll die. I'll lay down and give up my life for what it says in the Gospel of Matthew, but I'm not going to do that for the Gospel of whomever. They had to recognize some unique, distinct authority, inherent authority in the book, or they weren't going to lay down their lives for it. So there were three criteria that the early church used to really determine what it was that they would put in the canon, what it was that had the authority of God, the, the, the authority that would uphold it as Scripture. So let's talk about the three criteria that the early church used. The first is to be a book in the New Testament, to be recognized as being Scripture, the inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God, the book had to be considered apostolic. Apostolic. That means that it had to be written by a, an, an apostle or a very close associate of an, of an apostle. Apostles were, were those that were eyewitnesses to the work of Jesus, commissioned by Jesus to go out and to be his ambassadors and to spread the good news to the ends of the earth. There, there's a lot of debate about how many apostles that there were, and that's really kind of irrelevant. But they were men that, that witnessed Jesus, eyewitnesses to Jesus, saw him with their own life, and were commissioned by Jesus to go out and to do the distinct work of the apostle, apostolic ministry. And so we know that Jesus was even preparing for this in the Gospels. Remember to John chapter 14. We're going to look at John 14 and John 16. In John 14 and 16, what is Jesus teaching us about? 
the Holy Spirit, right? Those are probably the two chapters in the whole New Testament that may give us more insight into the ministry of the Holy Spirit than any other chapters in our New Testament. In John 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now what is significant about that? These men were not necessarily writing down the gospel accounts as they were happening. They were witnessing it, perhaps. They were, they were experiencing it. But now how often do you remember events exactly as they went down? How, how often, if, you were to, if I were to ask you, all right, now, 15 years ago, back when you were you know, doing whatever, maybe you were in high school, maybe you were in college, maybe you were you know, retiring, I don't, I don't know. 15 years ago, when you were walking around with such and such, tell me about that. And you said, well, that's, it's a little bit foggy. It's a little bit unclear. That would not be the best story that you ever told, would it? It would not necessarily be the most reliable information that you ever got. Now, the Gospels were written by people that looked back, sometimes perhaps decades after the fact, in retrospect, and wrote down what they knew about the life and the ministry of Jesus. Now think about the amount of detail that we have in the Gospels. Think about the, the sheer number of details that the Gospel writers gave to us. How can we know that it's reliable? Because those men, though they are the authors of the, though they are the uh, writers of the scripture, they are not the authors. The author is the Holy Spirit Himself, and Jesus promised, even while He was in the midst of these men, that He would send them the Helper, the Holy Spirit, that would bring to their remembrance the things that they must remember. That the Holy Spirit was going to superintend the process of of writing out the scriptures. That the Holy Spirit was going to make sure that facts were remembered, correct, were remembered correctly. The Holy Spirit was going to make sure that the right events made it into Scripture. The Holy Spirit was going to make sure that it was without error and that it was sound and strong and right. In John 16, verses 13 and 14, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. That the Holy Spirit is speaking to us as Jesus has instructed him to speak. That he is coming to these authors, he's coming to these writers of scripture, and he is giving them the words that Jesus himself has given to be spoken, has given to be recorded throughout history, to be handed over to the church. This is why the early church recognized the teaching of the apostles as being of the utmost importance. You remember in Acts chapter 2 when you have right after Pentecost and you've had 3,000 people have been saved and they all gather in this early Jerusalem church, right? And they're, they're gathered up and it says that they're giving themselves. And man, they're, they're, they're selling their property and giving to each as he has needs and they've got everything in common. And what does it say that they do? They're in awe and wonder and they devote themselves to what? The apostles' teachings. That very early on, from the very impetus of the church, they recognized that the teachings of the apostles were wrought with the authority of God, wrought with the Spirit of God, filling those words to go out with power and 
um, and authority. And so how is it that God writes the scripture? God wrote the Old Testament and the New Testament in essentially the same way. Now the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the way the Spirit comes in, right? In the Old Testament, the way that you would have it is, it, again, like we said, it would typically be an officer, someone who, who holds an official office uh, in the Old Testament community, a prophet, a priest, or a king. And the Bible will, tell, will speak of it all, the, the Spirit came upon him, right? Now, the unique thing about the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament is the Spirit came and left, right? That he, would, he could come upon you and then he could depart from you. Now sometimes the Spirit would, would come upon you. I, can, I think in the uh, building of the ark that, that there was a, a man that the, I can't remember his name, but a carpenter. And the Spirit filled this man so that he was especially competent for the work and could do the work well. Well, in the New Testament, the Spirit doesn't, leave and, doesn't come and leave, does it? The Spirit comes at Pentecost and descends among the disciples there and descends among the apostles and he remains with the apostles. So how does, the, how does that lead to the writing of Scripture? It's the, uh, the technical way of saying would be verbal plenary inspiration. In other words, here's what we're saying. What the Spirit did not do is he, this did not become like his right arm came under possession. And so he was like writing these things completely, you know, you know trying to d- stop his arm. And his arm just was going to write down the words, right? Like, that's not what happened. What, what the Spirit did, remember it talks about in 2 Timothy 3.16 how this is God-breathed. Is the Spirit breathed the word into the apostle's heart. And the apostle wrote it just as the Spirit Intended, to do, intended him to do so. That though he was a sinner and though he, was, he had his own personality and though he had his own voice, that the Spirit so worked through him and so breathed the Word of God into him that he wrote it out so that it was in perfection. And by doing it that way, he actually uses the personality of the man the unique writing style of the man, the background of the man, and it it comes across in the writing so that people of different backgrounds and different thinking patterns and different uh, ways of understanding and learning things are able to have so many different varieties of of literature types and genres, and, and yet all of them have been superintended by the Spirit as the Spirit possessed and filled these apostles and, main, and, 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 and superintended the process of writing it in. And so we have the, the Spirit, give, he, he, he gives it to the man, and then the Spirit himself preserves it over the millennia, over all of the time, which I'm going to talk about a lot more here in a minute. Now, you'll notice I said that this is apostolic, but it's obvious that not all books are written by the apostles, right? So we go to, like, we might think of, of Luke and Acts. Luke was not an apostle, but Luke was what? Luke was the, the helper of Paul. So Luke was very tightly connected to Paul. And so what we're getting in Luke and Acts is we're getting Paul's account kind of channeled through Luke. Mark. Mark is not an apostle, not recognized as an apostle. But Mark was the, the partner in ministry with Peter. 
And Peter was the leader of the apostles. And so when we're reading the gospel of Mark, we're reading the, the gospel kind of through Peter's eyes in a sense. And so the church upholds these things. The Hebrews, we don't really even know who, exactly who the author of Hebrews is. But it is clear that Hebrews is very closely associated with the apostle Paul if Paul did not write it himself. And so even those books that are not written by apostles are written by close associates of those apostles that have been able to bear witness and give account to those men and those men document it down. Even a lot of the books that we have. So you remember this past this past Sunday is a great example. Aaron preached from Ephesians uh, chapter 1, right? Wasn't that this past Sunday? Yeah. Aaron preached from Ephesians chapter 1. And remember how he said that like there's there's you have like 20 verses and two sentences. You know why that happens? Probably the letter of Ephesians was not written out by Paul himself. Probably Paul was speaking these things, and he was speaking those things to someone that was transcribing them. And we speak much differently than we write, don't we? When we speak, all of us speak in run-on sentences, and all of us speak with, with our grammar not just right, but when we write, we're much more technical, aren't we? We're much, more, we're much choppier. We're much more, you know, like Tony's going to grade it and make sure that it's all, all right. And Tony, you're the perfect illustration of how we write and talk differently, aren't you? Uh, I love you, my brother. Uh, <laughs> But, but, it, but it's just different, right? And so you had men that were, were transcribing it. And so sometimes the, the, the syntax or the, the structure of those sentences is really pretty weird because these men were speaking it and another man, man was writing it down. And so that's how we have some of these other authors. All right, so the first criteria in the determination of a New Testament book in the canon is that it is apostolic. That it is either written by an apostle or it is written by very close associate of an apostle. The second criteria is that it is global, or the, uh, you know, the, the historical way of saying this, that it is Catholic, but I didn't say Catholic because there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. Catholic in that sense does not mean the Catholic church. The word Catholic literally means universal. It means global. And so here's what that means, is that it was recognized globally universally by the early church members as being authoritative. That when they read it, way back when, they all read it and they were all in agreement, yes, this is scripture. Yes, this is, in fact, the word of God. Yes, this most certainly is what the orthodox of our church and the orthodox of the teachings of the apostles and the things that we have heard, this is certainly uh, verifiable by what we know. And this was present in the very earliest of churches. So here's what some liberal scholars, I, I gave you guys the, uh, an understanding of what I meant by liberal last week. I'm not talking about liberal pol politicians, okay? I'm talking about those that, that have significant doubts about the authority of Scripture and the Enlightenment and undermining all of that and needing rational explanations and all of those things, okay? So if uh, you want a more robust explanation, you can go back to last week and kind of wade through that hour <laughs> and find it in there. But... What, what a lot of liberal scholars want to you to believe is they want you to believe that the church did not have this, the canons until like 300 years after Jesus died. That's just not true. That's just not true. The churches had copies of the word, word of God. Now, they did not have this, okay? They did not have a 
coherent, a cohesive book, all of the volumes in one that they were walking around with. They had, they had individual letters. They had individual, individual scrolls and parchments that, that these things were written on. But they certainly had the words of the apostles dating back from the very beginning. But now why wasn't it able to be compiled? Why, wasn't it, why weren't they able to have this great council and, and, and bring it all together? Persecution, right? Persecution's the main reason. That if you went, hey, got a copy of Philippians here, looking for Ephesians. Looking for Ephesians. Anybody got Ephesians? Got the Gospel of John. Really like to hear what he said in Revelation. Can somebody help me out here? That's a death sentence, right? So you couldn't have these great meetings of, of, of the Christian leaders of the day because if, if you had these great meetings of the Christian leaders, that's where the Roman legion was going to descend and just wipe them all out. So they couldn't have these great councils to come and put all the books together at the same time. Not only that, you had geography, okay? They didn't have, they didn't have uh, Air Force One to jump in and, and just fly over from Europe to Asia and say, okay, hey, hey guys, you know, what's, what's going on? Have some tea and let's talk about the, the word. It was a bit more difficult to travel in those days. And what we're going to see here in just a minute is remarkably, remarkably, the Lord used those things, those hardships, to give us even greater confidence in the Bible that we have, even greater confidence in the preservation and the process of preservation to make sure that we got a true Bible. I'm, we're going to get there. I'm excited about that. But about the year 300, that's when we begin, between the years 300 and 400, that's kind of when we got uh, after Christ, that's when we got our full canon. Now what happened in between the years 300 and 400? What's that? Well, there's that. But even, even pr just prior to that, what, led to what leads to these things? You have a Roman emperor by the name of whom? Constantine. Constantine. Now, for my historians out there, why is Constantine significant? What's that? He converted to Christianity. All of a sudden... You've had generation after generation after generation of Christians that have been under the oppression of the Roman emperor. And then God delivers Constantine. Constantine, in fact, makes Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. And at that time, now, suddenly, we can come out into the open and we can be free thinkers and gathering councils. And so we have the Council of Nicaea. Then we have the Council of Constantinople. And you have all of these councils that begin to take place where they're able to come together and form the, the, the cohesive canon that we now have because persecution was coming to an end. I think this is a really cool passage that kind of uh, lets us know that the early church had the, the scriptures and kind of undermines, in my opinion, the argument that the liberals had in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. I think this is an encouraging passage, by the way. Peter says, and count patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Given him. How? How, did, how was the wisdom given him? By the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit breathing the word of God into him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Can everybody just say amen? You ever just read Paul and say, Paul, that was beautiful. I have no idea what you're talking about. 
That was awesome, Paul. Thank you for that contribution. I don't know what you meant. Peter, the apostle Peter is reading. The, the one that Jesus looked at and said, on this rock, I will build my church. He's saying, you know what? I have some trouble with some of the things my brother Paul, he's a little bit of a brainiac. He's kind of a nerd. I, I, I struggle with that. This is when it gets good to me. This contributes to our argument. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own, own destruction as they do the other scripture. So you have the Apostle Peter recognizing the writings of the Apostle Paul as being scripture. As being on equal ground with Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Ezekiel. As being on even ground with even, in fact, his own writings. You have Peter, an apostle, the leader of the apostle, the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church. And he is talking about Paul's letters and Paul's arguments. He's saying, this is scripture. This is scripture. That Peter read what Paul wrote and Peter submitted himself to, the, to what the things that Paul wrote as though Paul was writing through the inspiration and superintending of the Holy Spirit himself. This is no small thing. Because in fact, the early church obviously did have the scriptures. Unless Peter is a liar. Unless Peter did not know what he was talking about. Unless Peter himself was unsure. I put in your notes, there's a, a timeline, a little bit of what to, the way that we got this. So most of the, the, the books that we have in our New Testament were written between the years 8045 and 8100. Um, they were collected and read in the churches between 8100 and 200. They were carefully examined and compared to uh, spurious writings or the uninspired writings between 8200 and 300. And then there was, 100, there was uh, complete agreement among the churches and in the councils between A.D. 300 and 400, which is, again, begins with the reign of Constantine. All right, so we have the two criteria so far. We have apostolic, associate, written by someone associated with an apostle or an apostle himself. Then we have that they are global. They are globally recognized Globally, globally, globally acknowledged by the churches. And then finally, they are orthodox. They are orthodox. In, order, in other words, they uphold what is biblical, true doctrine. That they will not contradict themselves. We know that our God is not a God of chaos. And our God is not a God of contradiction. So if you have something that was written, and it contradicts something else that is upheld as scripture, then we have a problem because then there's a contradiction in God and he, in fact, at that point is rendered not God, right? So the, 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 the uh, apostles and the early church took this with the utmost severity. They examined all of the scriptures, searching it out. Yes, okay, it's already been acknowledged. This is of the apostles. Not everything that the apostles ever wrote was inerrant. Right? They wrote other letters. There are other things that Paul wrote than what we have in our Bibles. But those things are not recognized as being the authoritative canons of Scripture. Why? Perhaps they contain some contradictions. Paul was a sinner. Remember, Paul himself calls himself the chief of all sinners. And so even Paul's ability to, to, to rationalize and use logic and to think was at times flawed. Unless... He was under the total inspiration of the Holy Spirit and God was breathing in him his word so that he could write it down in a way that was without flaw and without error. 
And so the churches came together and they compared these, these books and they read these books and they searched them scrupulously to make sure that they were without contradiction to show and make sh- because they knew that God himself was without contradiction. That's how we can go to the book of James. And James says, faith is, you know, faith without works is dead. Abraham was justified by his works. Rahab was justified by his works. And then we go to Paul, and Paul says, well, by works, by, by grace through faith are you saved. Not by the works, not by merit, not by all of those things. And we can lay those things side by side and know there is no contradiction. It is just yet another way that we can have a lot of confidence in that. Now, how was the New Testament preserved? I mentioned this a bit last week, but how was the New Testament preserved? There was no printing press, okay? You didn't just type it in your Apple and then print it on your Epson and there it was. You didn't go to the Xerox machine and just say, all right, I want 50 copies of of Ephesians, let's rock it on. Everything was hand copied. And so you had people who devoted their lives. Think about this job, right? They're sitting in poorly lit rooms with candles flickering, eyes straining. And let me tell you, there wasn't lens crafters back in the apostles' days, okay? So you can imagine as the years went on how much more difficult that even got as time went on. And so you've got all these guys and they're squinting in the candlelight and they're, they're just hand copying all day every day. They'll write through Ephesians over and over and over. And they have editing processes trying to make sure that what they're writing is perfect. But now how many times have you ever hand copied something and it come out just the way it was supposed to come out? Not very often, right? You skip over a word or you skip over a line or you you write a word twice or um, or you turn the page and the pages stick together and so you skip over a page, right? I mean, there's all kinds of of things that can, that can happen. And so writing, it, the handwritten copies of these led to textual variants. A variant meaning something that was not in the original manuscript, something that was not in the original, what we call uh, an autograph, those, those things that were the, uh, uh, the ones that are actually penned by the apostles or the associates of, your, of the apostles. Let me give you an example of a variant, probably one of the largest variants in your New Testament. Turn with me to John chapter 8. In your Bible. All right. Does anybody have John chapter 8 and in your Bible it's in brackets? Anybody see that? Yeah. What, mine even, what, does, yours have, does anybody have a note above theirs in brackets? What does it say, Michael? Right. And so uh, most people believe that though it may be a story that actually happened, it's probably a true story, and though it is a story that reinforces biblical doctrine, and it certainly does not undermine biblical doctrine, that 753 through 811 was most likely not in the original Bible. Now, why is it in here right now? And this is one of our favorite stories, right? I mean, this is a good one. We, we don't like taking this one out. So that, that's why it's still in there, probably. That, this is where it gets to that red that, that sheet with the red writing on it that I gave to you. All right, so if you were reading your, your KJV, you probably see that, and you may not have any brackets. Does anybody have a KJV? Does it have brackets? Yeah, it doesn't have brackets, right? Why is that? 
Because the KJV is based on Byzantine manuscripts. In other words, you remember, if you'll, last week I told you that the manuscripts that we want to get our translations from are the ones that are the oldest. In other words, we want manuscripts that are closest to the original writings, closest to the time in which they were actually, because there's less time for variance. That you might have a scribe that would write a note, and then you have somebody that's hand copying it, and he accidentally includes that note. He doesn't know if that note is supposed to be a part of the text, or if it's a part of the scribe, and it makes its way in there. So there's words added. Or you have in there, and they're writing in the margins, and the same thing happens again as they're hand copying. So what happens is, is, over time, the manuscripts swell. And so there's more words in there than are actually supposed to be in there, than were actually there in the original manuscripts. Sometimes they'll even go in and they'll have been heard a story about something that happens, which is what I believe happened in the case of John chapter 8, that they heard the story of what Jesus had done, and it was a true story and a good story, and so they just wrote it into the edges of the Bible, and somehow, it just over time, it was integrated in by mistake. Now, 98% of all textual variants are completely without, without matter. They are a letter left out. They are a punctuation left out. They are a word that has been skipped over. 100% of textual variants do not in any way undermine the gospel. They are, in fact, stories like, this is one of the largest ones, the woman caught in the act of adultery and what Jesus has said. So, the, so the, this is not in brackets in the KJV because it was based on Byzantine texts, which are much younger, and then later on, as archaeology advanced, as, as human exploration advanced, we begin to uncover manuscripts that were much older. Manuscripts that are much closer to the time of Christ himself. And so we have Alexand- what we would call Alexandrian text. Now I explained this in that document that I have in there. It's, it's, it's talking about a KJV controversy. That's what I had to write about. This is something I, written, I wrote for a class. Not many of y'all are embroiled in a KJV controversy. That, that's why I'm not... I don't want you to misread what I'm, what I'm writing here. But it just gives some helpful information, I think. And so when we come to modern translations like the ESV or the New American Standard or the Holman Christian Standard or the NIV, they are all based on Alexandrian texts, texts that are much older, texts that are closer to the time of Jesus. So when they took these older texts and they laid them, bes- these older manuscripts, and they laid them beside these younger manuscripts, they were able to see that in these older manuscripts there was agreement that these verses and these words and these stories were not in fact in the older manuscripts. And so you want the closest thing you can get with, that, with the least amount of variance as possible. And so they begin to base them on, and that's why, you know, it's an erroneous argument when you hear somebody say, well, in my KJV, there's just more words in it, and them's important words, and that, what you got must not be right, right? It's, it's a completely off-base argument. It's because what, what we want is the most accurate that we can get. The, the KJV is a great translation. I am not in any way disputing that. It has served the church well and faithfully for a lot of time. I'm giving you understanding as to why there are fewer words in the ESV or in the NASB than there are in the KJV. Because it is based on older manuscripts, older texts. And so... We, ha- we were able to catch things like John chapter 8. There's a, there's a sermon by John Piper that he does on John chapter 8 that you could look up on DesiringGod.com. And he actually walks through um, a much clearer argument on textual criticism that we don't really have time for 
here today that's quite good. But what we can see overall is the preservation of the New Testament was clearly an act of of providence, an act of the sovereignty of God, ensuring that we were getting the right thing that we were to have and hold into our hands. And it's really amazing. If you were to take and you were and you were to take like the number of the copies of Homer's Iliad that we have uh, uh, from the era, the Alexandrian era, and you were to take the copies of the New Testament that we were to have, and does, how many people have you ever heard question the accuracy of Homer, Homer's Iliad? Not very many, right? If you were to take the number of those that we have and the age of those and compare those to the numbers of the, of the New Testament canons that we have and the age of them, the New Testament canons blow it away. Like it's not even close. We're talking the difference in hundreds because the people of God wanted the word of God. And so they were diligent about copying it and they were diligent about spreading it around and they were diligent about passing it around. So how was the word of God protected from significant purposeful revision or alteration you understand the question the question is is how can we know that there was not some group of people at some point in time and i'm sure the history channel makes an argument to the contrary but that's why you don't get your theology from the history channel right right that there was not some organization of people that came together and altered the word of God as we have it so that they could, they could propagate their agenda in some way and alter what the people of God would think over the generation. How can we be sure that we are free of that? Well, first of all, it would require a centralized controlling body. You can't do that when you have this decentralized mess that was the early church, right? They're all over the place on three different continents and things just spreading here and there and everywhere and it's going all over the place. They weren't centralized in a single location and they had all various different copies of the word of God at the same time. So due to the widespread distribution of the originals as well as the copies, individuals, or small scale attempts at alteration would, would produce clear evidence upon comparison. In other words, if there was a group of people that wanted to alter it, then you would have eventually three more copies of that book would show up and they'd be like, hey, that's not what this says. That's not what this is about. That the beautiful thing... I'm fixing to make a cool comparison right here. I'm gonna compare it to the rainbow people. When I was when uh, when I was in uh, the youth pastor here, this is this is what a great youth pastor I was. I once took a group of boys camping and the rain with the rainbow people at Pine Glen, and uh, these guys came and they they explained to us that they are the world's largest disorganization, that they are not in organized in any way. Right? They're this that's their big thing. And so that you know they don't have the centralized ball. That's their whole hippie little deal, right? Little gypsy plan that they have together. That's really what that kind of describes the church, the early church, man. They were just kind of here, there, and everywhere. There was this big disorder. So you couldn't have this huge, massive council because you can't get the people from Europe met up with the people from Asia, met up with the people from Africa. Like, how are you going to fit all that together, right? And so that actually served to protect the integrity of the Bible. Because the people in Africa, the people in Asia, they, and the people in Europe, they all had copies of these books. And so if they brought them together into, and compare them, like the people in Africa couldn't sway the people in Europe and the, and, and the people in Asia at the same time. So James White says it this way, How can we know that the canon we now have contains 
the content of the original authors without any purposeful revision or alteration outside of normative scribal errors. One word, multifocality. Multiple authors from multiple locations directed to multiple audiences during multiple time frames. This was not a centralized endeavor with inspired books coming forth from a controlling group of men behind closed doors. You see what he's saying? That because the Bible was, had multiple authors in multiple locations directed to multiple audiences in multiple time frames, and these things are spread here, there, and everywhere, and all over the place, there was not a central body of people meeting behind closed doors or up on some rock somewhere deciding what they were going to have the church believe. Different authors are writing over here, and different authors are writing over here, and, different authors, and it may take 50 years for this book to get over here, but man, it's all going to the same thing, and it's all pointing in the same way. And as these things spread and as these things multiply, it becomes virtually impossible for someone to alter it and to make it mean something different. That's why I believe it was the providence of God and a gift of God that the persecution of the first 300 years of the church did not allow them to have a council come together and do the canonization of Scripture at that point. I think that's why the Lord waited 300 years You had 300 years worth of handwritten copies being disseminated across all of the known world about the goodness and glories of God without ever having a council of people come together in any attempt to reconcile or alter it. So by the time you get 300 years out, man, there's a lot of these things. There's a lot of these things. There's a lot of copies of this. And so it gives us so much confidence And so much hope to think that when we are reading this, that this is actually what Timothy read. That's amazing, isn't it? That when we read 1 and 2 Timothy, that is actually the words that Timothy read 2,000 years ago. That when we read the book of Ephesians, this is actually the letter that Paul wrote and that they stood and gathered all of the church around and they read it to the church. That's amazing. That when we read Revelation, this is actually the words that John wrote sitting on a rock in the midst of exile as a martyr, soon to be martyr for the kingdom of God. It's amazing. And the Lord, through ordinary circumstances and ordinary means of providence, protected and defended and managed his word. So is the canon closed? Can we have any new books added to the canon? Can we have any new books that can come in and contribute to what is being said? No. Why not? Because there are no more apostles to write it. There there are no, the, the apostolic ministry has ended. And so by the very definition of what we were given, there is no, so anybody, anybody comes and says, I've got a word from the Lord. You say, well, is it this one? And if it's not this one, it ain't a word from the Lord, Right? This is not a pope, not a bishop, not a preacher, not a prophet. The canon has closed. Why has it closed? The New Testament closes the same way the Old Testament closes. 
You remember we talked about there's, a, there's an arc of redemption, right? There, there's a, there's, a, there's a, an unfolding of the redemptive plan of God that is happening. So why did it close in Malachi? Because it closed talking about the Elijah, the one who would come in the strength of the Elijah. It closed talking about the forerunner, the last of the Old Testament preachers that would be John the Baptist that would come. It was closing because God was preparing to invade earth and continue unrolling his plan of redemption. So there's a 400 gap and then it starts back. Well, why does it close when it closes now? Because it closes anticipating Christ's return. It closes waiting until the Lord once again will invade earth and come here and triumphant victory and receive his church as his unblemished bride, as the one that he has set aside for himself. So as we close tonight, I ask you, the early church was willing to die to give you this book. If the early church was willing to lay down their lives so that you could have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if they took it that seriously, how seriously do you take it? Do you give your life to the study of this book? Do you give your life to, your, to obedience to this book? How seriously do you take the work of the Lord through these faithful brothers and these faithful sisters over the first 300 years? And then many, many more, if we were to get into how in the world, you got an English translation in your hand right now. Brothers, what you, brothers and sisters, what you hold in your hands is nothing less than a gracious, divine miracle that God has given to you because he wants you to know who he is and he wants you to know his love and his grace for you. And he wants you to be able to walk in fellowship and relationship and joy and security in him. Take seriously the Bible that you have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that is your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have given it to us so that we can know it and 